can start by just introducing yourself a bit. And, uh, Good. So, well, as they say, so let's start with your childhood, right? Um, so, I grew up in Montreal. I'm a purebred Montrealer. I uh, grew up in, uh, you know, playing in alleys in Montreal. I'm a, sort of a street rat, street kid, uh, uh, an alley cat, right? So, it's, I, I um, was... Uh, Raised as a uh, you know normal uh, in, in a normal kid in a sort of urban environment uh, with a, at public school I went to uh, a private school that's in uh, secondary CJ um, I don't come from an entrepreneur background uh, so my, my my parents are not entrepreneurs so it, it, it took me a while to get to uh, you know get in, get into the idea of uh, being an entrepreneur. While to get to that, um, and, and, and I think that um, I, I think that that calling for to become an entrepreneur came a bit late. But I realized in hindsight that I, I had some I had some projects in mind. I've always been attracted by innovation, and um, and that's what led me to uh, you know from architecture to to, to uh, technology at some point. But it's, it's always been uh, something in the back of my mind, like, how can I improve things? How can I make things different? And that's where I see a, a, a very um, similarity between uh, being an artist and being an entrepreneur. Right? There's, there's that similarity there of wanting to change things, wanting to disrupt the status quo. I think that comes from very far in my childhood. Um, wanting to be um, different, wanting to be original, wanting to change things. And I think entrepreneurship came, came from there. Uh, it came from the, the, the idea or, or the, um, the willingness to, to change to disrupt things. So, you know, I could extend a long, for a long time on my childhood, but, you know, that I'll, let's, stick, let's stick to that for now. Perfect, thank you. So you mentioned you the your background is an architect, you did a bachelor in that. When you graduated, what, what were the steps after that? What took you to, okay, well, I want to maybe become an entrepreneur after that because architecture and the tech startup ecosystem is a bit of a two different worlds, but uh, what brought you to do that change, that uh, switch? So when I graduated from architecture, um, it was in the 90s, so and, and uh, construction, the construction industry was in a pretty, pretty bad state at that time. Uh, still recovering from the uh, 1988 recession, which is really, really bad. And in, in the 90s, it was still prolonging. And um, I had the chance to, 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 uh, to work abroad. I worked in Mexico City for one year. I worked here, and it, I just, I just felt that architects were not um, in a position to, to, to take strategic decisions in their industry. And I didn't feel that it was as innovative as I thought it, it would be when I did my my training program uh, back then. And, and training in architecture is amazing, actually. It's a, it's a great background to have because you're, you're, you're training your right brain and your left brain. You're training your creative mind, but at the same time, you're working on structure as well. It's, it's, I think it's a great balance. I love studying architecture. It's actually amazing. And I'm still proud of having done that today. And that's something I, I wanted to do for a long time uh, in, in my in my uh, in my teens. So I did. I reached that goal, but realized that um, you know architects were not positioned to be able to take 
decisions um, easily, were not as strategic as, as I thought they would be. I, th I felt architects in Mexico City were a lot more strategic in, in their uh, impact on, on the construction industry as here. So I, I, I decided to do an MBA just to learn more about business. And this is where, that was in 98, and that's where you know internet was booming here. It was just taken off. And I went into, I had the chance to work into a, a startup and never looked back. Since then, I, I've been in startups, uh, you know, accompanying founders or founding myself startups. And I've, I've never looked back on, oh, you know, do I regret having done architecture? Should I, should I have stayed in architecture back, back then? Never, I actually never looked back on that because I, I'm, you know, in projects like Table Taxi, we're gonna talk about it, I think, a little later on, but I did, I did more design Creative, creative. You know, I had more creativity implemented in, in tail taxi than I did in, in my three years in architecture, working as an architect, which is incredible. Um, so I think, I think, um, you know, moving from architecture to innovation for me was not a big leap. Actually, it was quite. It, for me, it was quite seamless. It does, it does seem a bit off, but you know, when when you look at it in, in many industries, I look at startups. I, I see a lot of entrepreneurs who have coach a lot of entrepreneurs. And a lot of them are, you know, a lot of them are don't practice what they've actually been trained for. You know, a lot of them are engineers, uh, lawyers, accountants, you know, um, florists, uh, musicians. I knew a lot of musicians who start businesses, and that's fine. I mean, that's that's great. But 20 years ago, when I decided to sort of, you know, move away from it, a lot of my architect fellow architects were like dumbfounded. How can you leave our practice? How can you? It's a sort of sort of betrayal, right? And then I didn't feel that way myself, but uh, and, and today I, I I think that you know when you look at innovation, I see I see innovators coming from all walks of life. I don't think it's tied to any practice. I don't think it's tied to any specific training. I don't I don't I don't think you train for for being an innovator. You know I I still have a. I have a flashback from um, a, a, um, a summer camp I did. It's um, it's a four week expedition uh, in, in the back country of Quebec. It's called Nouveau-Yahit. It's the, you could call it the, the pioneer program. And you, you do four weeks of canoeing, and it's really deep in the woods. And when you come back, they give you what they call a podium. They give you a little uh, a little piece of memory of you know what you were during that that four week expedition. And they gave me a name. They gave me they give you like Called the totem, uh, and it, it, the, the name was um, uh, sad. Sad is someone who's proud. Is, is a, is a, sad is a, um, a deer, right? A proud deer. And excessive is a, a very um, accessible and very uh, people oriented. And that stuck with me throughout my whole life. You know, and I realized why was I the one proud? Because I was the first community in front. I was the one who wanted to discover. You know the the, 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 the reef, the, the first the first rapid. I was the one who wanted to, and that's something that's in you. You, know, you have it. You can you can be trained on innovation, but if you're if you're not willing to accept what that what, what innovation is about, it's, it's about exploring, making mistakes, being embarrassed. A lot of people ask me, you know, how did it feel launching Tail? Tail was embarrassing in the beginning. You know, it's, I I wanted to crawl into areas of darkness sometimes because the product wasn't ready. You know, and, and, and sometimes I don't know if you've heard that the saying. You know, if 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 you're if you're not embarrassed about the product you're launching, 
It's probably because you're launching it too late. You never heard that expression? Who's heard that here? One, two, three, folks. I felt it, you know? And if you're waiting for that perfect moment to launch because you're so proud of it, it's probably too late. Someone's already developed that idea and gone to market, right? And you know, we've been talking about this with the Bojo startup team, uh, that team here, uh, about you know, better done than perfect. And I think that's something that's really ingrained in what innovation is about. You know, it's, it's about taking risks, it's about going on a limb, it's about you know, being a swan mouse. I've been, I realized today I've been doing that all my life. You know, I've been taking risks. And I, have, I have a family, I have, I have daughters, and, and I, I could have said, you know, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna go for a big job and stick to that. But I've been I've been trying stuff for the last 10, 15 years, right? And they haven't always worked. Can you say to you, well, taxi worked? Somehow it did, somehow it did not. You know, somehow we moved, we moved the needle in Montreal. Is it a failure? Should we call it a failure? You know, and it's, it's open for debate. I feel proud of that failure, frankly, but I'm going beyond waiting after your question here. So let's go back to the script. <laughs> we'll talk about it a little bit later on. Okay. But we're going to start with the mobility startup. So the urban tech also, or related to that field, uh, you founded uh, Taxi in the beginning. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what the app, I think it was in 2012. <coughs> can you tell us a bit about what it was, where, where, when, where did you see the need for that, and how did you get into the taxi industry? Okay, so <laughs> my father used to drive a taxi to, to, to pay for his studies, and um, it's funny because I, I still, he showed me his medallion, right, a medallion in the taxi business, his taxi license, with, with his real medallion. They had a metal medallion, right, with a, with a number on it, and he had his picture, it looked like a mugshot, you know? <laughs> And if, if, if you had asked if you had asked me 20 years ago, oh Pat, you, you know, you're an architect or you're, you're in technology, you're gonna be working 20 years, you're gonna be working in the taxi business, I would have laughed my head off. And I, I finally wound up in the taxi industry by by you know uh, circumstances and, and it happened uh, because at some point I, I was involved in the uh, parking application, you know the parking uh, payment application, P dollar in Montreal. And uh, I, I, I loved, I loved the fact that we could have a direct impact on, on, um, on urban dwellers. Right? I love the fact of having technology impacting directly uh, the way of the, you know, the way we live. And, and that's that really, for me, struck a chord strongly. It was uh, the, the, the the fact of being able to um, improve people's lives on a daily basis. I found was really really compelling. So at that point, I, I realized that you know mobility was or mobility as, as as in smartphones was was on the rise with, with you know new smartphones and realized that we could have an impact on urban mobility. And for me, that sort of sort of brought me back to you know uh, the idea of having an impact on, on people's lives, on on, um, on uh, experience, on urban experience, on mobility. Mobility is probably one of our biggest urban challenges today, by the way. It has huge economic, economic impact. The fact of being stuck in traffic for uh, you know, one hour, two hours per day has huge economic impact. We don't calculate that that much, but on productivity, it certainly does have an impact. So I realized back then in 2012 that 
you know, I, I joined a bunch of guys that were working on a, on a, mobile, a mobile app um, to order a cat. And I, I thought that yeah, was amazing, you know, to, to, to be able to uh, order, a, order a cat just a, on pressing a button. And, and Pack Taxi, who's, who's used Pack Taxi here before? Because I, 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 meet, I meet sometimes people that have used it, and I love the feedback. Everyone loved it. It was like overwhelmingly positive on the user side because it was a big button, you know, it was tag me, and you just press a button and a cat would come over and pick you up. Back then, we didn't have payments, and that was one of my projects was to implement payment in the app. And the idea behind Tag Taxi was um, how to become an Expedia experience of the taxi business. And that's at the same time, Uber was trying to. It wasn't in Montreal. It was starting to raise raise funds to to, um, to go global. Actually, at that time, but they were still in the U.S. And really, we wanted to come up with a model that's radically different than Uber. Because the last thing we want is to be a new two application. We knew we had a strong impact, but how about uh, how about aggregating the taxi the taxi uh, business into one app, rolling the payment, and then you as a user can choose the car you want. In that, in that application. That was the principle behind that taxi, right? And I still think to this day, in 2019, seven years later, I still think that idea is good. I still think it would work, it would have worked. And why did it not work? You want me to talk about that? Uh, am I going in the right direction? That's good? I'm not off straight? Okay, good. So, I still think today that, that if the taxi companies had accepted the model, and some of them did back then, but had most of the market accepted the taxi, uh, had most of the market accepted the idea and rolled their uh, taxi fee into the app, I think Uber would not have gained as much market share in Montreal as it did today. I am absolutely positive about that because we would have integrated payments, which is one of the first things you want in, in, in those ride-sharing uh, applications is payment, right? Integrated and, and ease, ease of use, right? You want frictionless, Experience, and we tend to forget that when Uber implemented in 2014 here, they started with taxi, taxi, right? We tend to forget that their playbook in implementing in different markets was to start with getting supply from taxi companies, from the, not companies but taxi drivers, right? Who would use Uber's app in their car, and you get picked up by a taxi cab. That was Uber when it started here in Montreal, and in every city where it started. I don't know if some do, do, do folks here remember that? Who, who, who doesn't remember that? Who doesn't? Okay. We have a couple of folks who don't remember that when Uber started, in every market, they started with taxi. Because it was so new and they had payment, people were indulgent, right? They were forgiving. Because you're serving the same smelly cab, right? But you're doing it through an app that's cool, it's got payment. It's the same cab that's coming to pick you up. So my thinking was, if I can do that, if I can aggregate the taxi, the taxi business into one app, have payment, I'm going to kill Uber's supply because I have, I would have 2,000 cabs in Montreal, right, on a snap of the fingers in the app. The problem we had was the fact that the taxi companies did not accept that business model. They did not want their brand being rolled up into an aggregator a la Expedia. 
Some of them wanted to play at the beginning, but it was, and we realized that rolling out our product. So we had, we had two, three, you know, contracts signed, rolled it out, and then we started, whoa, we realized, holy shit, we're not reaching product market fit here. There's an issue, right? And we realized that the taxi companies would not accept that model because the aim, they didn't want to be competing against another in a, in a not, they didn't understand the model and didn't want to pay for those referrals, which is exactly Expedia's model. Exactly, right? And I'm still convinced today that that model can work. Even today, because there still are taxi fleets out there. You know, tail is gone, right? We don't have any uh, electric vehicles anymore, but you can still order taxi dining through the Tail Taxi app, by the way. I did that this afternoon. I use, I use, you know, I use that because I try, I try to diversify my use of cabs in, 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 in any city. Um, I don't I don't like the fact of using a monopoly. I hate that. I hate monopolies. And, and Uber's going to be, even though, you know, Lyft raised, uh, for, you know, did a $40 billion IPO, uh, let's, let's not kid ourselves. When you go across the world, Uber, Uber rules, right? Uber's everywhere. And it's become a global brand, except for Asia, where they got kicked out, or actually bought their way out uh, with, with, um, so, is that tag? Yeah. Is that we're good on tag? Yeah. One more. Expand on that. Just another question, maybe. What, why do you think there was such a high barrier of entry in that industry? What is it the, the drivers? Is it the, the dispatch companies? And what couldn't you convince them? Because I have a friend who tried to get, get into that world, also the taxi world, and it was such a hassle get, trying to convince them that listen, <coughs> that's something you need to do because change is going to come, Uber is going to come, and they're going to take the same market space. Um, so, is, is there, so your question is, is why is there a big, big, big barrier to entry in the taxi world? If Uber came in that space and was able to get market share, it's because the barrier of entry was not that high, actually. No. And I don't think the barrier of entry is that high in the taxi business. Uh, as much as it is in other incumbent industries. You know, what happened to the taxi business happened to the music business, by the way. So if you, uh, at this, I see a lot of young folks here, but the, the, does anyone know about Napster in this, in this room? Yeah. Napster, who knows Napster here? Ah, uh, not too bad. So Napster is the Uber of, of right? Is the, the, the music business. Look at what the music business did. What did they do? They filed lawsuits, they even, they even Filed lawsuits on users, not even let alone like the you know the the the, the masters of this world. They, they tried to sue the users who downloaded MP3s. It was bad. Look at all the money they spent trying to you know trying to drag down a new business model and take it and drag it into the mud. And that's what how the taxi industry responded as well. They tried to sue Uber. I don't know how many how many class actions of Ubers you know. Uh, lawsuits Uber's received in the last in the last ten years. It's incredible. You know, they, they, they have hundred people in their in their legal department. Uh, it's, it's no joke uh, because because they had to you know face regulation changes and also lawsuits, a ton of lawsuits. So, but they came in that industry from that field. They came in with technology and have always positioned themselves as a technology player. Right. So we're not we're not a transporter. We just put 
you know, uh, uh, we're a peer-to-peer -peer play. So we put a peer, a user, and a driver together, and that's it. That's all we do. We don't transport because that that business of that ugly business of transporting folks is devolved to someone who's you know going to be paid a, a very minimal wage when he does a when he calculates his his income on an hourly basis. Right, that's the reality of things. When you take an Uber to the cab, you're actually paying someone who's probably making anywhere between seven and nine dollars an hour. That's the that's the reality. Let's face it. Okay, there are Uber drivers that that are stars and make a ton of money. But in general, the gig economy is not making people richer. That's a fact. Look at the numbers. So barrier to entry, I'm not sure. I think they came in the industry from left field, technology play, and I've always said that you know they they were they had a brilliant play, which is positioning innovation versus incumbent. If you're against Uber, you're against innovation, and that politically is a very very strong position. They framed that discussion big time, right? So it was hard for a politician who has constituents in the taxi industry saying, well, why are you encouraging this new player coming in, right? Because he's killing my business, on, you know, on, on the, based on the permits, on the licenses, on the medallions, that whole thing that we don't like to talk about. But that whole thing was created by government, by the way, okay? So quotas, you know, and, and, and uh, I don't want to get into regulation that's, that's off track, I'm sure it is. But keep in mind that that whole permit, like, you know, taxi license business was created by government. Yes, there were, you know, there was a, 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 a inflation on the taxi license value over time because it's a fixed market. But who fixed that market? Was it the taxi drivers? Of course not. These are, these are folks that struggle for a living and have actually borrowed money to pay a friggin' license, and then the government says, oh, we're gonna let in a new guy in because he's a technology player. So this whole, I, I, I've, been, I've lived through that whole crisis in Montreal, but that playbook happened in most cities across the world, and some of them have reacted with you know, a lot of openness, come in, we're gonna drop those license values to zero, we don't give a shit, come in and take the market. And others were very, very strong. You know, Germany, you know, some German cities blocked off Uber entirely, right? Does, does that make those German cities anti-innovation? You know, are Germans, you know, um, backwater people? Uh, is, is, is Montreal backwater because it wanted to transform its industry but in favor of the taxi business? So this whole, I don't have the answer. I'm not saying that I'm right or wrong. I'm just saying it's a complex debate. And barriers to entry in that industry were very low for that reason. If Uber was able to come, to come into town, not even consult regulators, and just come in, have a, 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 a manager, a local manager implement the app, recruit a couple of drivers, and then kick it off, that's how it happened, right? That's how Uber got off the ground in Montreal. And I think Uber got a lot of good as well because it placed the user finally at the center of the equation. Because the taxi industry was was poor on user experience. I don't, I don't need to convince anyone of that today here. And that's what they brought. That's that's what a disruptor does. It brings new value and it brought the, it brought the user at the center of that equation, which transformed the whole industry. So I think the barriers were improved. Yeah. All right. So now let's tackle tail taxi. So 
you uh, in 2014 you decided to stop tag, I guess, and start working on a new concept, Teotax. Can you talk to us about the, the beginnings of that and uh, like you were mentioning the struggles you had at the beginning and uh, how did it all take off and how did it take off? So actually, a, a tail was a tail was a, an incredible uh, test in timing, and you know, I, I've I've, I've uh, developed several startups um, from scratch, and I realized today, you know, there's there's an element of luck, and some entrepreneurs don't like to, to talk about that, you know, the, the element of luck, because it diminishes their, you know, their their ego maybe or their their. <laughs> their uh, their pretensions, but the, the timing timing is probably the key. And, and Tac Taxi, and I often say that Tac Taxi, we had a great plan. It was a great business plan. It was amazing. I love it. Technology was there, the right time. As far as I was concerned, for users, but the timing wasn't there for the taxi industry, the taxi companies. So we had a, we had a great plan. We had a great technology. I think we had a good board uh, of directors. We had a good team, but it didn't take off because the taxi companies weren't receptive to that kind of model at that point. So we moved on. And then a year later, Uber comes into town. I bump into Alexandre Fan who wanted to potentially put money into in, into taxi, and we're thinking, you know, his his big idea was to electrify transportation. So let's okay, let's start with let's start with the taxi business. Okay, let's bring something. Radically different than Uber. And let's combine forces in developing Table Taxi. We, we came with we came with that brand, uh, and it took a year to develop. It took time because we what we did is pure pure lean startup development. You know, without being too dogmatic about it, we didn't do you know whiteboards with post-its and all that. But you know, we, what we had as an assumption was a was a spreadsheet. Right? How do we remunerate differently? Taxi drivers and taxi companies and taxi owners, that was our MVP. It was a spreadsheet. Because there, you know, taxi drivers, companies, and taxi license owners are all it's all about numbers. It's all about how do I make it end of the month? How much, how much, how am I gonna make the money at the end of the month? That's their that's their anxiety, right? And when we pinpointed that anxiety, and you know, I'm sure a bunch of you know what Lean Startup is, and you know, uh, Design, design thinking is here and how we uncover user needs and pains and needs and frustration. That's what we, we were instinctively going about is where, you know, how do we uncover that nugget and then transform this into a business model? It was a, we met, I, I would say, between him and I and another uh, one of the early partners, we probably met with 250 drivers over the course of nine months. No bank account, no company, no name. Just validating the business model, and I think that's pure. It's 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 a, it's pure in, in a sense that we didn't go after vanity metrics. We didn't develop a glossy brand. It's more about how do we uncover a need, right? How do we uncover a true need and a solution that can that can respond to that need? And at some point, we realized, okay, so drivers, their big anxiety is salary. Right? It's money. It's how they're going to make. How do? How are they going to make it through a week? Right. That's their anxiety. We're all about. Oh, you know, we're 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 in a different world. And I realized that when we started the Taylor Taxi. I mean, 
vacation, the weekends, you know, the holidays with friends and family. They don't take holidays. Like, I, we hired a driver that drove Bensky who had not taken a freight holiday for 10 years. And I'm, I'm not joking. I was floored. I couldn't believe it. Are you kidding me, man? You didn't take three days of vacation off in the last 10 years? That's, so when we talk about the gig economy, that's also what we need to keep in mind, right? Um, so when we, when, we, when we discovered that you know, financial anxiety was a problem, that's, that's, when it, that's when it started, that's when it started to kick in. Okay, so how do, we, how do we resolve that problem? And we realized that the problem in the taxi industry is not the drivers. I, 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 honestly, I think drivers are very brave people. They're very uh, resilient people, people who, uh, who, want to, you know, who want to do good, and, and they're trapped in a system that, and I can say today, you know, I'm not in the taxi industry anymore, and I could talk about it freely, you know, they're trapped in a system that places all of the risk on the drivers, right? They're the ones paying for the, um, the monthly fee with the taxi company. Taxi companies don't own licenses, by the way. I don't want to get into technicalities, but no worries. But I'm just saying that the drivers take all the risk. Taxi companies, they bill a flat fee. Taxi license owners, what do they do? They, do? they bill, a, they bill a, a rent. So they take a rent from the taxi driver. It's like, it's like owning a duplex, right? Taxi license owners own a duplex. And they, they rent two shifts. One has the day shift, the night shift. And who pays for those rents? Drivers. So they're paying, they're paying on a weekly basis those shifts, right? And they're paying the taxi company. And when they take, they take a transaction with a credit card, they pay 6%, 6 percent, six friggin' percent on a taxi, on a, on a credit card. So why do you think they don't want to take the credit card and want to pay, they pay cash? Because they're getting dinged, right? And no one talks. About, no one talks about that because they're not communicators, right? Those drivers are not Uber. They don't have a communication team that sends Twitter feed, you know, that sends Twitter posts, and, and you know has an automated relationship marketing program by email, right? They're not. They don't have that. And unfortunately, they they've been they've been sort of played at by by the Ubers of this. Not the Ubers, not the only one in, in terms of communication. Because they're not good at it, right? So, Teo, I think we, we wanted to respond to that. We wanted to say, okay, can we be, can we be the white knight of this industry? That was the, the assumption. I, I still remember our, you know, bi uh, business model canvas. We had an iteration of that, and we had, you know, we are the white knight of the industry. And how do we resolve that pain? So we had the driver pain, and then we do, we did the Taxi owner, license owner pain, and then we looked at the user pains. But the user pains, I already, I had already thought them through with Tag Taxi. So it wasn't about how do we resolve that piece. It was more about if we can resolve financial insecurity in that industry, we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna raise the bar in terms of customer service. That was our assumption, okay? And it's it's a very lofty goal, and we're not even talking about electrifying yet. Although we're developing that in parallel, but it's more about okay, we're going to create a social impact, right? We're going to raise we're going to raise their social conditions by providing them with a salary. That's where the that's where the the salary worker idea came about, right? And a lot of folks were like, "Are you kidding me, man? 
you're in an industry where all these drivers are unpaid. You know, they're, they're, they're uh, independent workers, right? You want to salary them? And, and that was a very bold move. It was, that was our assumption. So people, when people talk about, you know, what was Tail about? That, that's what it was about, right? It wasn't about a, being a tech player, first and foremost. I'm not about tech for tech. I'm not about tech for a purpose. I'm about, about how do we leverage tech to make this world a better place, right? Now, that was, that was the idea behind I'm a tech guy, right? So I'm also an architect, but, but mostly a tech guy. And, and I, I, I felt very proud of that, about that. But that specific moment in time when we realized that we resolve the financial pain of drivers, I was very proud. I was thinking, okay, we can do something with this. Let's work on that assumption. Let's build a business case on the idea of transforming their lives. And if they if they if they, if they make a better living, how do you think they're going to behave in the car? Well, they're going to be happy. They're going to open the door. You know, they're going to they're going to smile. They're going to have a chat with you, and they're going to have a different perspective on things. So that was our assumption. I'm not seeing we delivered. 100%. You know, because realities are different, is a different beast. But that's where that's where Teo came about. And then we had also the idea of having, you know, an electric, an electric vehicle to come and pick you up with a driver's hat. So how about that as a value prop versus an Uber? I thought we thought it was very compelling. I was very proud of that. We developed Teo as a brand, very simple. You know, can we have a brand that's simple to pronounce? That's a friend. It's a friendly brand. You're calling a friend. Right? Tail was a it was a name first, and then we sort of retrofitted, you know, taxied, take up some and all that. But, but initially, it was about having a friend, right, uh, to come over and pick you up in, in a clean vehicle. So it's a ride you can feel good about. That's that's the idea behind Tail. Great, great answer. Thank you. I'm going too far. Oh no, it's okay. It's okay. Um, so now if you fast forward to 2016, Taxauto, which was the mother company of Teo Taxi, was managing the biggest fleet of taxis <laughs> in Montreal. You guys were heavily also developing uh, the app with the R&D team and all. How, did, how was that transition from okay, creating the startup in 2014 and all that process of scaling that startup? What the process internally of scaling, what were the challenges related to that, to the hiring, to everything related to that? Well. Who, who scales businesses here? I'm just curious. Who's, who's in scaling? Who's in scale mode right now? You? Two? Two low. Okay, we have two people. Scaling. Scaling is tough. It's like really tough. We're scaling right now. I'm, I'm scaling Osmo, Bonjour Startup, and okay, I think we're scaling right now. It's tough. I told the team, you know, when you're in when you're in scaling mode, it looks like it looks like shit. Because you, you have to change your processes. You, you know, you're, you're super stressed because you, you got to learn the stuff you promised. You know, this, this scaling is really tough. <laughs> so scaling tail is tough. I was, I was having a hard time. I was like, sometimes I was shitting bricks. It's, it's really stressful. And it's, uh, you know, uh, and I remember having a talk with one of the owners of Taxi Guy, and he told us before we started the day, he said, he's actually on my board at, in Impact Taxi. And he said, uh, you know, guys, Running a taxi company is a grind. You know, and I, I laughed. I remember laughing when he said that. But two years later, I wasn't laughing that hard. <laughs> 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 because because you know um, you're scaling everywhere. So you're not only scaling your tech team, 
find today that scaling and tech team is easy compared to the rest of the scaling you have to do because we have to scale drivers, right? You're scaling drivers, you're, you're hiring hundreds and hundreds of drivers. It's not, it's like it's, it's, not a, it's not an easy feat. You're hiring 20 to 50 people every week. You know what that means on an organization? It's, it's, a, it's a grind, you know, and you have to be standardized. It's a, there's HR, you know, considerations. You're, you have to standardize your, your, your process. You have to, you have to hire training trainers, you know, hire, so, so. Scaling was incredibly challenging um, because you're, you have to constantly adapt your processes, your structures. And I find that, you know, I, I'm, I, I realize that I'm, I'm kind of impatient with, with speed. I need, I need a certain velocity. And you realize that at some point you can't push too hard because you're straining the organization, you're straining your own people. And sometimes you have to, you have to, you know, take the foot off the pedal a bit. So there, there's that pace as well that you need to respect. And finding that pace is not easy because you're, sometimes you're, you're overburning, you're burning some of the staff and you, you don't want to do that. You know, you want people to be, to, to, to enjoy what you're doing. You know, one thing I love with Table Taxi is that we have such a strong brand and have such a strong mission that people were like, coming into work every day and they were like plowing through and it was amazing the enthusiasm. And that's when you, you, you know when you built a love brand, right? You literally lift, you know, we, we, we lifted a love brand off the ground and people were, adapt, were, were adopting that uh, voluntarily. And, and so you don't want to be exploiting that either. Right? You want to be respectful of people's energy. Uh, and, and I think energy, positive energy, collaboration, and those words might sound you know, super corny, but they work. You know, Google did a study on the most performing teams over the last 20 years of their experience, and kindness, collaboration, respect actually work. You know, versus driving people to the bone and stressing people out does not work. I'm telling you. And you, you might think that it does because you're squeezing every single friggin' penny out of them. It doesn't work. In the end, it doesn't work. When people are, are, are when people are, how should I say, aligned with your values, they're aligned with what you're doing, they know why they're getting up in the morning. Uh, and and, and um, so I think that, that that is a very strong um, point to reach at. You know, if you can reach that point where you've got your people committed, scaling then becomes somewhat easier, right? Because they all know why they're scaling. They all know why they're, um, uh, they're going through the, the, that sometimes grueling motion of you know, changing, adapting, reacting to situations that are not uh, under control. You're not under control. And that's something that, as an entrepreneur, it's really tough. You know, it's being, I, I think letting go of the fact that you're totally in control is something very difficult, I find. And I think that's when, when you're scaling, that's what you're exposed to when you're scaling. And imagine also while you're scaling, uh, hiring all these employees, they can't all be good employees, right? Not all of them will have a good fit with your company. And I know some of the startups also are sometimes struggling, waiting to see if they should hire now, if they should wait a bit. Is it a good hire? Is he a good fit? What if I hire him and then I have to let him go there? 
there's all these issues that come with hiring also. How could you tackle that? How, how did you guys, uh, unless you tell me that all the hires were a perfect fit and they all <laughs> work magically, but yeah, uh, right. So, um, okay, so hiring, and that's a question I get a lot from entrepreneurs, you know, it's, a, it's the nitty gritty, you know, and it's, it's funny because sometimes you hear in, in, you know, big conferences like lofty, lofty statements about, uh, you know, creativity and, and uh, inspiration, and I find that when I have one-on-ones with entrepreneurs, it's nothing, there's no conversation about those subjects, it's not about, you know, you know my, my, my inspiration when I'm alone, in nature, how I get inspired, it's more like they do that. I gotta fire my partner, and he's my buddy. How do I, how, how the fuck am I gonna do it? Right? That's, that's really what it's about, and it's, <laughs> it's not about, oh, I have that vision, and, and my God, you know, we're gonna, we're gonna cross the rocks, and we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna conquer Asia. No, it's about, I gotta fire my buddy next week, and I don't know how I'm gonna fucking do that. So, so, those are, and I think that's one of the fundamental questions is, is, is about talent, you know. In, in the mind of an entrepreneur, the, the, the priorities are all about funding, getting clients, and getting talent and retaining those folks. How do you do that, right? And retaining is tough. So when you have to fire someone, what's the impact on the others, right? And I find, again, that when you go back to your mission, your values, your authenticity, what we're about, what are we doing here, right? And then turning around and saying, okay, this person here, I'm not pointing you, by the way. <laughs> pointing there. <laughs> I'm trying to point, I'm gonna point there so no one's, no one's. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it's, we don't think, or I don't think you, I don't think you look happy in this organization. You know, I, start, I always start with the personal experience. It's not about, you know, <clears throat> You not being good as a person, uh, or or not performing, or not competent is okay. You don't look happy. I don't think this is working. It's not working for us or the company. It's not working for you either. What do you? How do you feel about this? I always start with a conversation about, you know, is this the right place for you? Can you do something? You know, and I find I've always found that having open conversations with. Folks in, folks in my team, is, it goes a long way. You know, it's more about, instead of coming in with, okay, we're gonna have a meeting, uh, it's gonna be at 4.30 on Tuesday, I'm gonna come in with my papers, okay, this is gonna be an official meeting, I'm gonna let you go, here are your papers, son, here you're gone. I've never done that. And I've always had you know, very open discussions about, okay, <clears throat> what is not working here? Can we do something about this? I don't. And based on our conversation, I don't think it's going to work. How do you feel about this? Right? Do you want to continue in this situation? <clears throat> and then if, if the situation dra- drags on, uh, you've had a first conversation, then the next, you know, two weeks later, it's not improving, the situation is potentially worse. Remember we had a discussion two weeks ago about you being not well and not performing, or, you know, about us trying to do something with you Trying to improve the situation mutually, it's not working. So, where, where is this leading? You know, where are we going? And oftentimes, it comes to a, a mutual conclusion, right? And I love mutual conclusions. It's more about we think you're going to be better in this kind of organization. I'll, I'll be, I'll be glad to, you know, give you a reference to move on, right? But this is not working. 
So we need to be very clear on, you know, because dragging on this kind of situation, I found, and I've done it, I've done it many times myself. So I'm not above that kind of mistake. I think we tend to take more time, way more time than we should, before letting go of someone. And that affects the organization, it affects the individual. If you're dragging on a situation that's not, if, if, if you're thinking it's bad for the organization, it's bad for that person as well. The person's not feeling well, not feeling appreciated probably. So if you bring it, if you bring that discussion on a human level, I think it, it, it removes the tension and makes it a lot more, I think, um, I think beneficial for So you left Tio Taxi in Jan 2018, uh, a bit more than a year now ago. Do you, do you reflect sometimes, you look at everything you've done there and you wish some things you did differently or some things that uh, you should have done, you should have concentrated more on, or what are your thoughts now almost a year and a half uh, after leaving uh, Tio? <coughs> um, I've often reflected on that. I think that um, Teo was a, a very ambitious project, and I think one of the mistakes we made is maybe having too much enthusiasm about the idea and being too bold on developing different products. I think we should, you know, in hindsight, and hindsight is always 2020, by the way, um, but when you're in it, you felt such such momentum, such enthusiasm for the, the project that we wanted to, you know, take advantage of that, take stock of that, and really push the pedal to the metal. We went, uh, I think, as, well, as far as I'm concerned, I'm not speaking for the others, the other founders, but I'm speaking for myself. I think we went too far in terms of wanting to develop uh, uh, many products at the same time and put a strain on the development team, put a strain on a lot of people, actually, in, in the organization. I think that we should have stuck to a mobile app catering to consumers in a restricted area of Montreal. During that time, we would have been able to build up our supply side, right? Which in, in, a, in, a, in, in any transportation uh, sector, by the way, uh, transportation is driven by uh, usually two drivers, two or three. Uh, first is uh, um, estimated time of arrival of the vehicle. So usually under five minutes, you're in a sweet spot, right? For your for your bus, for your metro, for your taxi, for your Dixie, five minutes is a sweet spot. So time time of arrival is one driver. The other is price, and the other is service, right? So um, I think I think those three are, are, are key are key in that. Had we really focused on time. Right? Because we can work, we could not work on price because we were tied to the taxi meter fare, which is regulated, unlike Uber. And that's one thing that played, uh, did not play in our favor. But had we worked on time and really focused on providing cars in that five-minute sweet spot, I think we could have we could have serviced better our customers because we we frustrated a lot of people. People had expectations. And we're waiting for tail taxes for 20 minutes is way too long. So I often said, you know, back then that we were in the business of frustrating people because we had we had too many downloads, and it's it's a very 
um, uncommon problem in the startup, they have too many clients. And that's something that people you know, realize that, okay, that's pretty cool actually having too many clients, right? But that's if you have enough product on the shelf. Right? But if you don't have enough product on the shelf, you're frustrating a lot of folks. And that's what happened to us. So we, because we wanted to expand, so we expanded across Montreal, but we only had 100 cars. That's one thing. Then we wanted to we wanted to roll out many products to start testing, so we rolled out business to business. So we were catering to uh, businesses. So we had a concierge service with a call center, right? We also had uh, an advertising service. So we had a domes that we designed, we designed industrial design for Montreal. Love the look of those domes, and we had a five-year deal with Ticketcom, right? To fill in those advertising spots, we had a we had a tablet in the back that we controlled, centrally controlled that was driving revenue. So we're talking about three lines of revenues in the first six months of launch. That's huge. Plus, not finished. We added street hailing, which Uber doesn't do, right? And street hailing on the surface, you're saying, oh, it's easy. You know, we're just going to pick up folks with a free taxi meter in the car, and it's, we're going to tie it to the app, and then it's done. Boom. Right? Super complicated, because you're dealing with cash. We, we, did not, we did not want to deal with cash. So how do you do it? You have to train the drivers. Okay, put a, put a strong strain on our organizations, because you, suddenly you're managing four lines of revenue. Right? And what, what, are, what are startups about in the end? What are, what are we about? We're about focusing. Right? We're about focusing on our energy on on the right amount of effort at the right time. So if you're if you're diluting your efforts on different product lines, you're increasing risk. You're building risk into your execution. And I think that's one of the biggest in hindsight, that's that's one of the biggest mistakes I think we made beyond all of the rest we've talked about tail taxi. I think that's I'm you know, and I hold myself in part responsible for that. Based on my enthusiasm, you know, we wanted to do, we wanted to roll out a lot of stuff and test quickly. And we were in super rapid mode. So, you know, being embarrassed was, was my everyday life. You know, my, the first, just, I, I know a couple of guys here, like, you know, I see, I see Chris here, he tested one of, the, was one of our first testers. You know, he remembers my embarrassment about it. And I, I think that's, it's totally fine. We were, I was ready to live with that. But I think in hindsight, we should focus on BC, roll that out for a year or two, kill it, literally dead that. You know, make it make it a super, super uh, uh, success, and then roll out the other products you know, progressively. We were too hungry on, on developing product lines. Thank you. <clears throat> uh, you mentioned that you've been coaching also a lot of startups mentioned them. Is there anything that you see that is recurrent between within with those startups or something you can an advice, <laughs> a general advice you can give to, to startups that are present here and uh, those will be watching the video uh, on either how to get a coach or even, even what are the most of the questions that they're uh, either the questions or the <laughs> solutions that you tell them, well, listen, you're taking this the wrong approach, this is the right approach, this is the right way to deal with it, or this is the right angle to tackle that kind of issue. I, I, I coach a lot, um, and I, I'm because uh, I, I just love it. I love I love speaking to entrepreneurs. Um, I don't I don't like giving like blanket advices like that. I don't I don't think they work. Um, I, I like to understand where they come from and what they're trying to achieve, 
what I can say is that a lot of the questions I get are around, you know, timing. Um, they're around a business model. Do I have the right business model? Is this the right timing? Um, do I have the right clients? Those are the questions that I get a lot. And, you know, what I find is that I don't always see the reflex of validating um, and that reflex of validating quickly. And I can't say how, I, I, I can't say enough how important velocity is in a startup. And I, and, and I, I find it in every organization today, actually. I think velocity is my main theme because I've seen so many organizations fail because they didn't tackle that quite um, uh, with, with the right enthusiasm or, or energy or um, uh, support. And, and what, what I mean by that is velocity is, about, is all about um, getting that, that right balance between you know, the, the, the right product at the right time or the right level of perfection of your product at the right time. I find people don't validate enough. I find entrepreneurs have that idea and oftentimes I've asked them, you know, okay, how long have you been developing this idea? And that some of the responses I get are, oh, I've been, I've been on this for six months, nine months. Um, okay, good. How many people have worked on that? I need to do my, you know, my lab stuff, and I, I need to, yeah, but do you know, 
could be spending a year net, you could be spending two years developing, and you don't talk to a client, are you kidding me? And that's, I find that's something I find very recurring, um, and I, you know, I think that's something that we need to always work on, is bringing back the notion of validating, and rapid validation, you know, I have an idea, what do you think about it? How would you, you know, improve the feature set that I thought through, and I, I've been thinking about this for years, for 10 years, or five years, or two years, I don't care. If you haven't spoken to the client, tough. So, is that, yeah? Thank you. How are we going on time, Nathan? Uh, so, sure we got John a little bit. Yep. Good behind, okay, so we'll attack on, so, March 2018. You accepted your CEO in residence at Osmo. Uh, what inspired you to join uh, the Osmo Foundation? Why? What, what drove you there? So, I, I, you know, I'm all about creating impact. Uh, how can I, how can I improve society? How can I have an impact? Right? Table taxi is about that. Tax taxi is about that. And even part of the parking application is about that. Just how can we create impact? And I'm, when I joined uh, Osmo last year, when I left uh, Teo, um, the, 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 the folks from Osmo asked me to help out. So initially I was, I was going to be here for only for an interim. That's why my, my title was CEO in Residence, which is sort of a tongue-in-cheek title. But uh, what it meant is that I wasn't here to stay. I was here to you know, give a hand and then pass it on, pass the baton on to someone else that would manage Foundation, but by doing this, you know, we, we uh, with Fondation Montréalic uh, last year, we won we won the uh, RFP to become the the regional uh, uh, innovation uh, hub uh, of Montreal, and then realized that wow, okay, maybe we can do something out of this, and realize that you know one thing that's lacking in Montreal is leadership around ecosystem development. You know, uh, one brand that can aggregate information that can have Increase collaboration between the players. Increase mobilize the ecosystem. You know, one place where you can find information, aggregate information. So, and, and, and that we find in other strong ecosystems. I can name you a few. You know, Tel Aviv has uh, Startup Nation, which is very, very strong. By the way, um, uh, Amsterdam has a, I am Amsterdam. The, the Waterloo has Communitech, and these are strong hubs that bring together the community. It's all about community. What I, and what I love about Osmo is that it's, you know, it's by entrepreneurs for entrepreneurs. Right? This was built, this whole thing, Notman is a, Notman House is, is a project of Osmo, right? And Osmo is about not, not, um, not closed, but osmosis is, is all about being, you know, open you know, to, 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 to change and, and to having input from others and, and cross-pollinating. This is what it's about. So. Notman is open to everyone. And that's what I love about the spirit is openness, collaboration. So the idea behind you know creating this Bonjour Startup is, is all about uh, ecosystem leadership and, and advocacy. Right? So how do we take this to, to the next level? How do we advocate with you know the three levels of government? How do we represent the ecosystem abroad, right? Uh, France has a French tech, right? It's very simple, very clear. So we had to come up with a brand that was simple, that was evocative, representative of Montreal. And Bonjour Startup was super simple. And we did it. We didn't do it on our own, you know, whiteboarding, strategizing here 
not many. We went out and built them. We had surveys. We brought in folks from the ecosystem, influencers from the ecosystem. Uh, and we iterated. Naming something is very tough, by the way. It's very difficult, especially something that sort of represents uh, the ecosystem. And, and, and we were very happy when we came up with it. I don't know. It came in, in one meeting here with uh, folks from the ecosystem, and boom, it clicked. Taxis have that, and bonjour is universal. Everyone understands what bonjour means across the world. It's a very simple name. So here we have a brand that's representative of what Montreal is. That's going to represent the startup ecosystem and make it stronger. Our ambition is to, you know, the ambition here is not just to do, you know, the cinq assets and uh, do happy hours and, and have entrepreneurs uh, meet and, and share ideas and do parties. It's it's more about how do we raise the bar. How do we take our ecosystem to the top in the top 20 worldwide? We're not, by the way. We have work to do. We have a lot of work to do here. So that's why I'm here. I'm here to help uh, the ecosystem, you know, take it to the next level. Be proud of Montreal. Be, be proud of our uh, startup ecosystem. Yes, and yes, we were allowed to, to, to dream of being in the top 20. Why not? You know, Stockholm, by the way, produces the most the greater number of unicorns per capita is created in Stockholm after Silicon Valley. Stockholm. Jesus. It's a smaller city in Montreal. Right? So I don't think being wanting to be in the top 20 is, is a lofty goal beyond our, our abilities. I think we definitely can reach that and we should. And we have everything in place. So the idea of the Hunt Bullshit Start is not to squash existing organizations. We have enough lot of those is to make them come together, work together, right? How, how about collaborating different spaces? We have, you know, we have nice, nice uh, uh, collaborative, collaborative spaces and spaces for meetings in Montreal, in the name of Santec, uh, Espace et PQ are one of those. Um, you know, we have uh, new, uh, new hubs that are going to be springing up over the next uh, few years, but we have to uh, create a sense of momentum and bring our ecosystem to the next level. What does that mean for an entrepreneur? It means we're going to support more entrepreneurs going abroad, right? One of the things that we need to work on, am I off topic here? Oh, I'm bang on. Because I can move on for hours, right? We've got a few minutes. We've got a timekeeper here. The pizza hasn't arrived, so I'm not competing with the pizza. Does it arrive? It has? Yes. Oh, geez, i got to finish right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, we have to work on uh, one of the KPIs that we need to work on is globalizing our, our startups. So our entrepreneurs are less inclined to go abroad and develop their business than other ecosystems. Tel Aviv, the, the contrary, right? They're both global for reasons I don't need to explain here. Stockholm as well, small economies, right? So since that we since we have the U.S. across the border and, and you know Toronto here, we're not inclined to travel that much. But it's not tougher to, to, to develop, you know, uh, Europe or, or Asia than to develop Toronto. It's just more traveling. But if your natural market is in Asia, why are you not going? You know, and we find that globalization is a strong driver in those ecosystems. I'm talking about Tennessee. I'm talking about Stockholm. So we need to get our we need to get our entrepreneurs on the plane. That's what we need to do, right? So we're going to work on that. We're going to work on creating more density. Density works in ecosystems. So what that means concretely is more, more space where we can collide as entrepreneurs, as founders, right? 
and founders <clears throat> founders learn more about about their business, about how they should be, you know, building their business with other entrepreneurs. So we need more startup coins. We need more space to have bigger bigger events where we're, uh, you know, entrepreneurs are founder the founder are, are doing some peer learning, and this is what it's all about. Right. So we need to work on that as well. We're not as tight as we think we are in Montreal, and that's a fact. Right. When we compare to other ecosystems, here's the pizza. Is there is there last is there last question? I think that's it. I'm going to turn the mic to uh, Q and A. If you guys have any questions for Patrick, I won't be able to send you the microphone. But if you can ask, I'll repeat the question. So, so in the validation phase, your question is, what are the signals you're looking for uh, when you're validating your product, right? So my answer is that you need to be wishy-washy because it depends on the industry, depends on the product, depends on, not all industries are sensitive to price, right? So you're not going to be validating price. So I, I won't be giving you a straight up answer on, oh, we need to have, you know, price sensitivity analysis done or feature set analysis. I mean, you know, there are different stages in validation, and we could talk about this for hours, so I'm going to try to sum it up, because have you read Four Steps to the Epiphany? You have not? Okay, so here's my short answer, buddy. So you read that, I'll give you my card, and we'll have a coffee in three or four months, then we'll talk about validation, right? Because here it's going to be way too long to... I validate on many points, several of my, several of my businesses, right? I validate on price. I validate on pains, right? You want to you want to start with pains, gains. You want to talk about you know features and then how they impact their their experience before talking about price. So you can you, you can validate across multiple points over time, depending on the level of maturity of your business. Okay, so it's not only on price because sometimes you're you're just validating use you know, your, in your customer discovery phase. You're validating use, right? You're validating your <coughs> the problem you're solving. Are you solving really a problem that has to be solved? Are you putting your finger on a real problem? It's not a real problem. Who cares? Right? Well, don't, we don't even need to talk about price because if you're not solving a real problem, you're barking up the wrong tree. Is my is my short answer to your question? Four steps to the epiphany. Steve Blank. That's the Bible. Right, that's 20 years back, right? And then there's lean startup, and then you. But if you want to go back to the roots of you know product management, and I think Steve Blank is one one of the best. It's 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 really the foundation of product management, and it's it's uh, it's about customer discovery, customer validation, product market fit. If you want to understand the whole terminology, that's that's where it came from. And it probably came from other stuff before that, but. I think four steps to be fit the epiphany is a, is a great way, a great start for that. Okay, so I don't have a specific answer to that because it's not, it's not, um, it's not a one size fits all.
question. You know what? I think it's human nature. I have my idea. Right? It's my idea. No one's going to touch it. I think that's the reflex. You know, it starts from, I've been thinking this through for years. I know this. I'm going to kill it. I don't need to talk to anyone. I thought this through. And I built a product for me. Right? I think, I think the answer to your question is, why are we not validating soon enough our ideas? I think it's human nature. And even though entrepreneurs have that idea because they're responding to a problem, right? Then it's about finding the others that are like him or her that also have that problem. So you're thinking about resolving a true problem because you, you think it's a problem, right? From the get-go. And then along the way, you're realizing in your validation phase, the client's like, it's not that big of a problem. People don't really care about that. They care about something else, which you, you hadn't even thought of, right? So entrepreneurship, you know, I, I find that I was somewhat arrogant at, you know, when I was younger. Entrepreneurship makes you humble, trust me. So I think some, the answer to your question is there's somewhat a bit of hubris in, in the entrepreneur's mindset. So you think he, he has it, and that's great as well. So it's a, it's a double-sided coin, right? It's hubris, but it's also integrity. You know, I know I'm resolving something. It's authenticity, right? It's uh, passion. But the flip side of that is hubris. It's, there's a fine line between the two. Is that, is that uh, answer your question? We can follow up on that later on. It's complex. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, my question is, uh, <coughs> Since I'm an AD, ADD, I already forgot the first part of the question. So, <laughs> are so what are the critical competencies that entrepreneurs should have? We'll get to the second part because I already forgot the second part of the question. <laughs> so, what competencies should entrepreneurs have? I see, I see entrepreneurs that have different profiles. I'm a, I'm a very, um, I'm a, how should I say? I'm very passionate about MBTI, you know, Myers-Briggs uh, profiles. You're, okay, so I, I like to put people in boxes, and I do that as a as a sport. And I meet folks that like, okay, he's a or she's a she's a you know she's a ENFJ, he's a NENTP, right? So I like doing that, and I find that I I, I come across I meet entrepreneurs that have uh, that are in most of those boxes, you know, so. Having the right skill set is is a tough question again because I don't think there's a magic there's a magic wand. I find that beyond skills, it's more um, your, your personal characteristics. It's potentially your upbringing, how you were how you were raised, your background. Uh, I find that people who are resilient, you know, who when they take a beating, they get up, they get back up, and they rise from the rashes, and they 
getting back up the next day. It's tough, they go through it. I think in general, those people go through, and I find that you know, entrepreneurs that have, had, that have had success got up again each day enough so that luck came their way and they made it, right? In the crunch, in the end, resilience is probably the greatest characteristic that you can have or develop, and you can develop that. It's not something that, oh my God, you know, I, 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 I was born with it and then, you know, I got it, so I'm, 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 uh, I'm blessed. I think you can develop resilience if you're conscious, so leadership consciousness of, of that characteristic is important. Um, resilience is, is tough to build, and it's a word, you know, you can use it as a word, oh, I'm resilient, oh yeah? <laughs> yes, again, you know, in the trenches, when it's tough, you know, when you can't make payroll, when you uh, when your staff is leaving, is leaving the, the building, when your clients are leaving, and you're still, you believe in your idea, you get back up the, city, the next day, and you turn a corner, and it could take three months, six months, nine months, you have to go to a bank, right? And you, and you can't make payroll. That's, that's resilience, that's tough. And oftentimes, you know what happens in those cycles, validation, that nine months you took where you did not validate, that's the nine months where you get killed two years later. Because you wish you hadn't burned that time and that cash, right? <clears throat> that's the nine months you're in that walk in the desert. Because your idea wasn't good in the beginning. It was shit. Because you didn't know jack shit about your industry, right? You thought you knew. You got in with it. And it took you nine months because you, you had the idea and you started developing work with an agency, and then nine months later you realize it's the wrong idea, I gotta go back to the, to the drawing table, redo that product, and then you're nine months again in, right? And it's a year and a half, two years, and then you're in the walk in the desert, you have to put everything in the mall, three years in, you have to raise more cash, you lost 90% of your staff, you gotta staff again, you got money, money in the bank, because you raised a, a, you raised a series A, and you have to hire, have to hire again, that's resilience. It's tough. It's really tough. Skills, yeah. You know, you're good at marketing, you're good at finance, you're good at accounting, you know, you're good at analytics, you're good, I don't know what you're good at. Right? All those things you can develop. But resilience is tough. That's does that answer the first part of your question? No, there's a second one. Did I answer the second one at the same time? We're all looking at the pizza here. We have two more questions. <laughs> the second part, it does ask the question. Okay. The second part was more along the lines of what competencies, so and it's not so much skills as in marketing or coding or whatever, the human side, the yeah. MTI side. Yeah. What can, so you, you mentioned the example of, oh, I've got to fire my partner. Yeah. But is it because they, because, you know, they have different, um, different types and they couldn't, you know, find ways to communicate? I see what you mean, but I don't know what the, what the question is. What's your, what's your, what's your question with the, with the question mark? Sorry?
30 seconds. Yeah, you know what? Let's, let's talk about that after because it's, it's a longer one. And honestly, I don't have a, a super right answer on that one, so I'll be happy to say. Real quick, we'll move on. One last question. Yeah. Ah, that's a good one. So when is an entrepreneur, when should an entrepreneur stop this project? Right? Kill the beast. Kill the beast. Ha! I've done that, so I know what I'm talking about. Um, and, and in contrast, you know when you're doing good, when you've got the wind in your sales tail taxi after time, it's just like, wow, the speed. You know, the, you, feel, you feel the speed, the traction, Traction is, a, is an incredible KPI to, 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 to measure, you know. The increase in sales month on month, the, the momentum you gain versus the non-momentum. So when do you stop a project? I, I went through TagTaxi, I went through validations, you know, and then realized that each sell was really tough. And at some point you run out of your runway, your runway reduces. And you're thinking, okay, am I able to get the next round based on the findings I've made? Because I did some learning, right? And then you realize that even though you'd get a million dollars in your bank account through another raise, you're not sure if you could change the marketplace. I, 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 I got to a point where I realized that I don't think I could change based on the plan I had. I could change how those taxi companies wanted to buy my car. Right? And no amount of pivot, no degree or angle of pivot, you know, some of you pivot 100 degree, 90 degree, 45, 100, no degree of pivot I felt would have changed that. So at that point I realized, okay, I don't want to work in an environment where I'm, I'm going to be struggling to convince clients to buy my product. At that point you realize, okay, it's over. I realized it was over at that point. I don't think I could have had we pivoted into an Uber model, an Uber-like model, fine, but I, I didn't want to take part in a model where I was copying someone else. No interest. Okay. That, there are many answers to that question. Make sure you stop. You know, if you have no more money in your bank accounts, that's a pretty good answer as well. But it doesn't mean you should stop. Right? Because you could raise money based on a great idea. So I don't think it's correlated to the amount of cash you have in your bank.